Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Book Nook, where the lore hounds your guides to the archipelago of Earthsea. I'm David. And I'm Marilyn. And this is part two of our coverage of the fourth book of the Earthsea series, Tahanu, by Ursula K. Le Guin. In this podcast, we're going to discuss chapters seven through ten. And we've got one more episode to finish the book, which will come out conceivably next month. (laughs) (laughs) We will start off with some spoiler-free conversation about our thoughts on this section in general. Following a quick break, we will move into a deeper conversation about the plot and major themes presented. While we enjoy discussing the book amongst ourselves, we also want to hear from you. Send us an email to book at thelorehounds.com or visit us at our website, and there you can use the contact form or voicemail feature. We've also got a Discord server. We really have a fun and welcoming community and a dedicated channel for the Earthsea Conversations. You can see a link in the show notes below. For ad-free versions of this and all of our podcasts, check us out at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. I'm going to share more about our Patreon as well as our scheduling notes for us and our affiliates at the end of the podcast. And if you have a moment, we'd really appreciate it if you would share your thoughts about the podcast. Ratings and reviews help others find the podcast, and we're grateful for any reviews as they help us make the podcast better. Now, you probably have noticed that John is not with us tonight. He had some unexpected family stuff, and uh, I assume that he will be back with us for the last part of the Tehanu book. Other than that, uh, let's quickly recap where we are with the Earthsea and our coverage plans. Mm-hmm. So far, we have read the first three books in the tr- trilogy. Uh, Wizard of Ursi, uh, The Tombs of Atuan, and The Furthest Shore. So we're in the middle of Tehanu, which is the fourth book, which was written in 1990. And she had written the first three books in 68, 71, and 72. So there's a big jump, a big gap. Yes, there is. And um, so we're going to, it, it is a big departure too from the original stories. And so there's a lot to talk about. And so we've covered all of those, so you can go back and find those podcasts if you want. And we talked a lot about the different structure and writing style and what this book, Tehanu, is, how it's different from the original. So I would encourage you to go back to that one too, because there's some, I think, some good perspective. If you're coming from the original trilogy and you're thinking, oh, hey, let's go, we're going back to Ursi. There's a big change in in Tehanu that's a really important change, and and I think uh, it helps folks to uh, contextualize that if if you've got that point of view. That said, we're going to be covering Tales from Earthsea, which was written in 2001, and The Other Wind, which is also a 2001 book. Mm-hmm. We're not sure. It'll probably be in the new year uh, sometime. We're going to get through December and January, and then we'll probably pick it up from there. Yes, so, I think so. Yeah. 
Great. Um, so, Marilyn, what are your thoughts from this second part of Tehanu, chapter seven through ten? I think these good are good markers too. The one through six and seven through ten, they they definitely feel like natural uh um internal structural things happening as well. So they're good places yes. to break. Yes, I feel as though last time we had finished with the end of Act One. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Acts. And, yeah. And so now we're in Act Two and we're gonna get through most of Act Two tonight. Um the pivot chapter, chapter eleven, um kind of finishes up Act Two and starts Act Three. Okay. Um, and I can't wait to get to it, but okay. it, it was re- so good and so juicy and so full of stuff. I said, no, we can't possibly cram this into this. We have to start off the next session. Right. Like start off fresh. Yeah. I, I had to restrain myself from just continuing <laughs> on into chapter yes. 11 when yes. I got to 10. Yes. I held myself yes. back. Good for you. Good yeah, for I, you. Yeah, I can, I'm, I, I, well, I think, I don't know if I could have passed that test when I was a kid, but you know, when they put uh, a cookie out and they say, if you- <laughs> right. If you wait however long, you'll get two as two, opposed to right, one. Right, 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 right. Delayed gratification. Yeah, I think I finally learned that lesson. <laughs> How old was I when I learned it? So, Yeah, so we've been introduced to all the major characters by now. And now it's time to learn about them, both friends and foes, and to mm-hmm. learn more about them. Uh, we even get to see one major character that hasn't visited Gaunt until now. So that's going to be fun. Right. And I particularly enjoy that we get to see some more therapy. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was still pretty much wrapped up in herself for the first couple of chapters, but now she's starting to open up and we're beginning to see um, more of her point of view and, and right. how she reacts to things. And that's, that's, I'm glad for that. It's very interesting. We also learned the answer to one long standing mystery that goes all the way back to a wizard of Earthsea. So that'll be fun to finally reveal. Mm-hmm. Right. And we get deeper into the ideas about gender and power. Right. Which this book really is, as I said before, very different from the first three, which were a very traditional, not traditional, but, you know, they're strong in the coming of age story, the call to, you know, the hero's call to, you know, action, all of that stuff. And this is a a very different point of view. It, It moves the camera into an entirely different set of characters and focus mm-hmm. and it, it is really i can understand why when i did pick up this book in the mid 90s and i was excited to read oh let's go back to Earthsea. it's like nope uh because she really does take on some difficult issues head on yes she does in this and if i i can see why at that time when i wasn't prepared for that and my yeah. expectation was different why i bounced off it at that time for sure and 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 wasn't prepared for what she was trying to explain to me right i was yeah. like i couldn't yeah. hear her just yeah. like uh and we that that comes up in in this story is is people who can't hear each other yes because they're not present in, in the moment with uh with the other person yeah she she describes it as looking at the story from underneath mm-hmm. that's one of the ways she talks about it and she also is clear that what she is doing is writing the fantasy from the perspective of ordinary people. Right, right. Not from the perspective of the heroes and the, and the villains, mm-hmm. necessarily. But, um, And we, we're so, uh, at least me personally, I can speak for myself, I'm so trained on the point of view of the hero. 
and the point of, of view of the young princeling who, you know, who's who's been in secret and suddenly is, oh, you know, right, right. we're all heroes of our own stories and, and mm-hmm. our media mm-hmm. caters to that. Mm-hmm. So if you're suddenly confronted with um, issues of gender and of violence and of injustice uh, and of loss, yes, the that's not the heroic entertainment that we're used to. That's not the superhero winning the battle at the end of the day. So for whatever minor troubles that they have to go through to get to that point, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this yes. is this starts right on the ground, right there from ordinary people point of view. Right. We're not accustomed to widows being heroes or right. children being heroes or right. uh, witches standing in for good people who do good things and, mm. and actually bring healing. All of those things are, are, and particularly it's difficult, I think, from the perspective of 2023 to be looking back to 1990, because that's mm-hmm. a long time. And particularly in the history of um, gender relations and understanding of gender, a lot developed and changed. So even though the 1990 book that she came out with was a massive change from 20 mm-hmm. years before, we are now even further along. Right. And we have to keep that in mind too. I can particularly remember that the, those uh, early to mid 90s, there it was a big conversation, at least where I lived in Seattle. Yes. And, you know, going to community college uh, up at Seattle Central Community College and Capitol Hill, which is a vibrant urban, you know, neighborhood. A lot's changed uh, to what it is now, but back then that certainly was a, a big place. And so, yeah, questions of gender and of identity and of, of uh, uh, you know, rights and responsibilities were being, you know, questioned and is it okay to hold the door and, you mm-hmm. know, for open mm-hmm. for somebody, all of these questions. And it was really a confusing time for me. I remember as a young man going, oh, like everything that, society has told me and the way that things were structured suddenly is altering yes. and I don't know, you know, what's going on and how to deal with this. And then, so I got to read this <laughs> book that I was like, Oh, I can read something that I can pick it up. It's like, no, a comfort no. Book, a comfort book <laughs> yeah. and not even there. <laughs> so, I feel you, David. I, I, I get it. Yeah. But, you know, and I think that's, that's an important part that, that this book plays in, um, Turning that wheel, right, and and yes. and moving our consciousness and our attention uh, out of old modalities and into into different ways of thinking about things, so mm-hmm. that we can try to seek more justice. And as someone who lived through the '60s and the '70s and the '80s and the '90s <laughs> and the '90s and the teens and now the '20s, I can see the cyclical nature of it. And as an historian, I can also see. The cycles that came before it. So the fact of change is not new. It's how right. it's changing right. and who gets to be part of that conversation. Right. And so if you are not part of it, then suddenly you're confused about whether or not you should hold the door. Mm-hmm. Right. But what was fermenting now in this time was uh, men were starting to have conversations. Right. And I remember as well in separate groups. And that's what yes. Iron John was about. Yes. Yes. Fire in the belly and all those kinds of things, which was necessary mm-hmm. before the different genders could come together and say, okay, we've both recognized some things. Now, how do we come together and move forward? And, all mm-hmm. and you know, it all, gets rocky sometimes, but 
it's it's good work. And it's all within a modern context because it's not like gender hadn't been dealt with before and and right. worked on in different cultures in, right. in, in prior times. The Greeks, the I'm just thinking from a Western Civ standpoint. Sure. You know, uh, Roman and Greek attitudes about gender and gender identity. Or I think there's some uh, there might be some material to look back towards in terms of Native American culture and, and mm -hmm. you know multiple gender identities being available. Yes. Where sort of post-World uh, War II, a lot of that seems to have been scrubbed. <laughs> a lot <laughs> of that has been, you know, altered or, or become inaccessible. I, I, I don't mean to segue too far off here, but I remember when we were trying to understand more about breastfeeding mm -hmm. uh, when our daughter was born, and learning all of that stuff and, and everything, there's just a lack of knowledge because at some point, yeah. culture just, you know, certain cultural imperatives came in and cut things off and, mm -hmm. and bifurcated mm -hmm. and said, before is not something that we're talking about. We're going forward from here now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so those oral traditions and fam family traditions and uh, the, you know, wide cultural practices just got scrubbed. Mm -hmm. And I think when we talk about, and I am no gen, I have not studied gender from an academic or historical standpoint. I'm just mm -hmm. sort of a, a person I could just imagine there, there's probably a whole world of stuff that the gender studies folks have access to right. about the construct of gender. Right. Right. That, you know, we just are void of in a, a modern context. Well, you used the word scrubbed. Mm -hmm. And as an historian, I can tell you that there are plenty of stories from way back of, you know, bigendered human beings operating mm -hmm. in the 1700s. Right. You know, yeah. Or yeah. women dressing as men or, right. you know, and, and people are starting to uncover those stories. I, I suspect that, you know, the boom came down probably in the 1950s. Yes. Yeah. And we've slowly been coming back from that ever since, as it were, and moving forward. And now, you know, developing what to us are new ideas and concepts, <laughs> exactly. right? It might have been happened, you know, this the, the wheel might have turned three or four times like this. That's right. But we're living in the here and now. Right. And so for us, it feels new and fresh and different. Can I say from our last episode, yeah. one of the things I loved the most was hearing you and John talking about how you probably changed more diapers than <laughs> your fathers ever even saw. Right. Uh, that's just a perfect exemplar of the kind of thing we're talking about. Right. And I think, too, that's why literature is important and reading literature together and talking about it together, yes. even though yes. we're, we're kind of this weird uh, podcasting is, is a, a few to many, I guess, model of, of the way that we're broadcasting because mm -hmm. we're mm -hmm. having a few, a few of us are having a conversation, but we're broadcasting this out right. to many and in so creating this sort of parasocial relationship for the conversation. And as a listener of many podcasts, that's what's, it's also very important to me because I get news that way. I get to understand mm -hmm. uh, other important issues that are happening. And so being able to uh, read a book and a series that Ursula K. Le Guin wrote and think about it and talk about it and share these thoughts and experiences is so important to that unscrubbing or, you know, of bringing back to life or, or I, I don't know if, if these are the right words to describe it because the information's there. 
Right. It's just become inaccessible for whatever reason. And it's through these kinds of conversations that it can become accessible again. Right. Or and we that people never can discover it. We never bothered to ask the questions because we never knew that we the didn't know what we didn't know. We asked. Yeah. And we didn't know what we didn't know. Yeah. 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 And I love the fact that with the medium of podcasting, I have the privilege of listening in to conversations with people who I will never meet, whose life experiences I will never have. Right. And their generosity of being willing to put that out to the world is something I can benefit from. At the same time, we also form communities. You know, we, the wonderful community that we have on the Discord channels, not right. just with Ursi, but with all the different things we're talking right. about. Right, right. You know, or the Prancing Pony podcast mm -hmm. community that I'm also a part of. Um, right. This is, it's a new way of relating, but I think it's, it's a very potent one because it takes us outside of our own narrower right, right. experience and introduces us to, to that wider world. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a very interesting experience to, <laughs> to be in, in this place. But mm -hmm. anyway, back to the story. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, let me just say that for those people who are thinking, oh, no, I really want to carry on with this. Let me just say there is some sailing in this section of the book. <laughs> we do get to sail on a really wonderful ship. Um, well, and, and that's, that's covered. Yeah. I was going to say that this, this chapter, these chapters seven through 10 really also felt like the uh, the storm clouds gathering, mm. and uh, as you said, we've got characters, we've got some people in place, some things are starting to happen, and so again, it just feels like we're building and building, and so I'm waiting for, mm -hmm. um, and I believe in like it was chapter eight where there was some, or no, it's chapter ten even. It was uh, there was some drama and tension happening with absolutely uh, chapter ten. You know that was sort of you know bone chilling to you know chill yes. to the bone kind of stuff. Yes, and so there is excitement and an adventure yet to come. I think in in this story. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there was. And mm -hmm, go ahead. We learn a little bit more about the politics of Gaunt and of Rose yes. and of Havner. Yeah, so. which is really interesting because we're microcosming on Gaunt, but yet. Uh, there's so much going on mm -hmm. uh, there. There was uh, one thing, too, I wanted to mention and what we can talk about it later. Besides all this foreshadowing that's going on, there was a really interesting uh, parallel to Tolkien. And there's parts of this that reminded me of the scouring of the Shire. Uh-huh. Say more. Uh, I can't without spoiling, so okay. I want to wait until after the break, but we're definitely going to talk about it. But there was this this interesting, and it goes into this question of justice and who embodies justice and yes. how is justice, uh, how do we how do we bring justice about? Mm -hmm. um, and, and how do we bring it down? I don't like those directions, but that's how people talk about it. Right, yeah, yeah. Down, quote unquote, to the quote unquote common person. How do we you know, we move? How do we get it out throughout society? Or, right, you know, to all these places, all the right. nooks and crannies, and all the little valleys and hilltops, from the where, center of the world, which is in Havner, right, to the farthest shore. Yeah, to the to the Gauntish, uh, to the the goat herders of Gaunt, so mm -hmm. who are often known as pirates. Right, right, <laughs> and are near the Kargish lands, right? So that they they've yes, also they also they not only are they mildly piratical, but they are also victim of uh, mm -hmm. reaving. Mm -hmm. uh, In fact, that's how we first really met Ged's power. 
Exactly. In the very first book, when he was, he had no training or anything of that nature and was a young teen. And he brought down the fog. Still managed to bring down the fog, which helped this small village of farmers and sheep herders and maybe pirates defeat a Kargish warband. Right. With pitchforks and so forth. Great. Well, let's take a quick break. And then when we get back, we will do a little synopsis. We'll talk about what we previously covered, and then we're going to break these two chap- these three chapters into two parts, and mm-hmm. we're going to talk in and around the themes of those things. So we'll be right back. And we're back. All right, Marilyn, let's move into talking uh, quickly about what happened last time, and then we'll go into the two parts of the story setup that we have this time around. So previously, the former Archmage of Earthsea, Ged, was flown on the back of a dragon to his home island of Gaunt, where he was met by Tenar, the young woman that he brought out of the labyrinth and who helped him to restore the ring of uh, Elf Elfaran. I'm not sure how. What's where's the syllaba? <laughs> I would say Elfaran. Elfaran. Okay. Get has lost all of his magic through sacrificing it to save the world from an evil wizard who, promising an end to death, had made a hole in the world that let all the magic and life drain out. Tenar, now a widow, has a farm on Gaunt and has adopted a horribly abused child. They all meet at the house of Ogion, the old wizard who had given Ged his first training. So, yeah, that's basically the setup for one through six. Uh, it was a um, very differently paced from the original books. And mm-hmm. like you said, we had to sort of bring the camera around and, and recenter ourselves. Right. So after Ged comes and uh, he... Well, here, why don't you why don't you set us up for for the first part of these chapters? Sure. And the one piece that I omitted from the, the previously on was the fact that Tanar was called to Ogin's house because Ogin was dying. Right. Right. And she gets there and uh, tends to him through his death. You know, one thing, just quickly to go back, and I was thinking about this when I was reading the chapters. Sure. Uh, whenever they were referring to Ogion and, and his naming, that in death you are referred to as your true name, yes, not your use name, yes. And and it, I just find that it's such a really interesting little construct and a beautiful bit of world building that she does mm-hmm. with that. So you can speak somebody's true name all you want uh, when mm-hmm. they're no longer here uh, because they're no longer. Uh, susceptible to any kind of misuse you might make of it. Right, yeah. But it's it's nice to be able then to think of and refer to that person in their true form as opposed to the, you know. Yes. And you and it's sort of a a reaching to their essence or to their memory. And I mm-hmm. believe there's a, a a phrase of, you know, if somebody's passed, you know, may their may their memory be a blessing to you. Right. Right, and yeah. it in that way, if I can know them in their true name sense, their memory is more of a blessing in that regard because mm-hmm. there's no more veil, but it's truth that you know there's some sort of connection to to who they were as opposed to who they were superficially, yeah, and maybe it is something of a comfort and a blessing to to have that deeper connection now, yeah, even though they are no longer 
a part of your physical life. Exactly. Um, you now know how to truly call them. And that, that was the most intimate gift that somebody could give to anybody else. Yes. Was the knowledge of their true name. Because it was also dangerous to know. Um, it was names have power in right. RC. And I think that hasn't changed. No. <laughs> <laughs> Between no. then and now. So what was Ogan's house is now Ihall's house. Right. And yes. Maybe we can remember to call him Ihall from now on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, a good. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen because yeah. I see in our summation of this next section, I say word comes of a ship from Havnor in Gauntport. You know what we should do before you read this next synopsis? This is final warning. Uh, spoilers. We're moving into full spoiler yes. territory for chapters seven through 10 of the book uh, Tehanu. So, okay. Yes. Take it away. Okay. All bets are off. If you haven't read it yet, stop yeah. now and come back when you have. That's right. So, word comes of a ship from Havnor in Gauntport. Ged panics at the news and decides to leave Ogian, now Ihal's house, to go to work on Tenar's farm. Tenar greets the king's messengers from the ship with frog's legs and <laughs> Andrade's wine from the dragon year, but will not help them find Ged. Auntie Moss, a witch with a lively past, helps Tenar to understand why she could feel love for Ged, but not desire. All wizards put spells on themselves to eliminate sexual desire in themselves and in all who see them in order to be able to wield their power. Such a practice, though, isn't necessary for witches. So this whole section and this conversation that uh, Tanar and um, uh, Auntie Moss have, I, I had to reread it several times, and I still <laughs> don't think I even had the full the full meaning of it until you just summarized it. Here. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Like mind blown. Yep, 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 yep. It's uh, she spells it out explicitly in in her essay, Earthy Revision. But okay, yeah, which I have not read. So yeah, but the way she presents it in conversation, you're supposed to realize that when Tanar, oh, Moss listened and nodded at the words of wisdom, but after a slight pause, she said, "It's a queer thing for an old man to be a boy of fifteen, no doubt." Yes. Yeah, I was. I I didn't what know how. To, yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> but Tanar figures it out, right? With a great many thoughts suddenly coming into her mind at once. That's why she said. That's why I never. Right. Had yeah. After quite a long silence, she says, "Do they? Do wizards? Is it a spell?" And Ma says, "Well, what else would it be? Of course, it's a spell. You know." Um, sometimes I'll tell you it's a trade-off that lets like a marriage turn backwards, but to me that's got a wrong sound to it, like a dealing with the old powers more than what a true witch deals with. And the old mage, he told me they do no such thing. Though I've known some women who, witches who do it and come to no harm by it. So there again, you know, the differentiating of, mm -hmm. you know, so-called masculine and feminine power, or how men and women have been gendered right. to believe in and to use and experience power. And Tanar says, but why? But why? Why did I never think? The witch laughed aloud. <laughs> because that's the power of them, dearie. You don't think. You can't. <laughs> and nor do they once they've set their spell. How could they, given their power? It wouldn't do, wouldn't do, it wouldn't do. You don't get without you give as much. That's true for all, surely. So this is the great spell. That right. 
Ursula K. Le Guin associates with um, the the gender relations. Right. Right. Um, and that the wizards take a uh, do a spell of celibacy uh, in some ways and and remove themselves from the sexual realm mm-hmm. for yeah, it, it's like they just flick a switch and mm-hmm. they're no longer conscious of any kind of sexual attraction right. or right feeling or anything of that sort there is love there is tenderness sure intimacy you know, Friendship. In in, yeah. in the second book, he says to her, you know, she says, will, will you stay with me? And he says, I can stay for a little while, but I can't stay forever. Mm-hmm. But if you need me, call me. Right. Mm-hmm. I will come to you from the end of the earth. Right. Right. And she reflects on times when she has seen and felt tender towards him. And is kind of startled to remember at one point when he first comes back and is still unconscious. Didn't I ever kiss him? Well, sure, mm-hmm. kissed him in the boat. I mean, sure, you know, but that's the power of the spell, right? Right. Whether it's sexism or this other thing, and she never deals with that in the books. Uh, she never confronts that head on. Like in the first three books, that's right. It's never talked about when Ged is at Roke or or anything. And the only time that there is any sort of hint of a relationship is in the second book. And even that is just mm-hmm. these couple of couple, two, three scenes at most, maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, see, both you and David were also talking in the first John. book about, excuse me, <laughs> you and John. <laughs> yeah, we're, it's Hello. Fine. Hi, you're Hi. David. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> you were both we're just talking. a disembodied voice at the end of a microphone. There we go. I don't even see your face, right? <laughs> Wrong. I do see a space yes. and I enjoy it. We very do much. do video for our conversations. <laughs> in the first book, both of you detected a certain amount of interest between Ged and his friend's sister Yarrow. Yes. And a couple of times have said, Oh, I think there was something there, or whatever. And I'm sitting here thinking, mm, Okay. Right, with Vetch's sister, yeah, Vetch's little sister, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. But Le Guin points out, consonance, abstinence, denial of relationship, in the realm of male power, there is no interdependence of men with women. Manhood, according to Sigmund Freud, Robert Bly, and the hero tale is obtained and validated by the man's independence from women. Mm-hmm, right. Connection is severed. The man's heroic relation to women is limited to the artificial code of chivalry. Mm-hmm which involves the adoration of a woman-shaped object. Mm. Women in that world are non-people, dehumanized by a beautiful, worshipful spell. A spell that may be seen to come up from the other side is a curse. Mm. And she points out that, you know, you see this world in, it's not a fantasy kingdom. It's an army. It's the stock exchange. It's every corporate boardroom. It's in our politics. It's in English literature. It's the world I lived in when I wrote the first three books of Ursi. I lived under the spell, the curse. Mm -hmm. Most of us did. Most of us do. Most of the time. The myth of man alone or alone with his God at the center on the top is a very old, very powerful myth. It rules us still. Mm -hmm. But thanks to the revision of gender called feminism, we can see the myth as a myth. Mm -hmm. A construct which may be changed, an idea which may be rethought, made more true, more honest. 
But she also points out that a rule may be unjust, but its servants may still be just. Mm. That at the University of Virginia, Wolf couldn't enter, Tolkien taught. The mages right. of Roke, honest and just men, trying to use their power mindfully, keeping equal equilibrium according to their lights. Mm-hmm. So it's too simplistic to say, ooh, evil men, good right. women, you know, abuse women. No. Within a system, any system, there can still be some concept of justice mm-hmm. and some concept of good and bad behavior. Right. But it's the power of the spell that you don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. It's just, quote unquote, the way it is. Mm-hmm. And I love the way Le Guin realizes this dynamic and encapsulates it in a magical system. Right. And right. Makes right. It into right. a spell which is so potent and its potency is demonstrated by the fact that you never think about it. Right. And, and, and when Dnar has that thought, oh gosh, we never even kissed him. Did we, how, how much did we even touch? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that it, she becomes aware. She starts to become aware mm-hmm. that there is this spell in place. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. it's interesting later, in the later parts of the this group of chapters, when Aspen tries to curse her, mm. and the the way that that curse takes on its embodiment, which is the uh, uh, a kind of inner monologue that is yes a negative uh, 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 internally tearing oneself down. Oh, I'm not worried. You know, uh, all mm-hmm. of these negative thoughts. Which we all possess, and we we try to learn to master. Right? There's a inner monologue that's always questioning our, our ourselves and our worth and our value mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. And we have to learn it for a voice, and we have to learn how to manage that voice. But anyway, that's a that's a whole mm-hmm. separate thing. Sorry, I'm getting a little digressing, but just to think about this question of gender and gender norms as this spell that we don't even see. And then right. part of the spell that a man wizard, a male wizard levies against her is to try to box her back down into a small space yes. and to make her less than, to make her feel less than she feels of herself. To feel shame. Yeah. And self-loathing. Right. right. And the only way I can heal myself is to kill myself. In effect. Right. You know, right. She's just the image of burning. There's a lot of images of burning in this book. There are. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. You know, good stuff and not so good stuff. And there's a lot of uh, draconic uh, stuff being oh, yes. seeded oh, yes. all throughout this. We will talk about this too. Yeah. But you see, the other side of the spell is that witches don't have to do this. <laughs> witches that don't, they're sexual and that's fine. And it mm-hmm. doesn't affect their magic or their power. Right. Uh, sometimes it enhances it. Some witches choose, you know, abstinence um, and and solitude and all that. Um, and Tanar doesn't understand this, um, and is surprised when Ma says, "No, I didn't have to give up any of my power whenever I had a man." And she, Tanar says, "But you said you don't get unless you give. Is it different then for men and women? What isn't different, dearie?" I don't know," said Tanar. It seems to me we make up most of the differences and then complain about them. I don't see why the art magic, why power should be different for a man witch and a woman witch, unless the power itself is different. 
or the art. And then that's when Moss gets into her essentialism about the fir tree and the bramble. And, you know, it's always different for men and women because that's what she's been gendered into believing. Right. Right. But that's a very important observation from the part of Pinard. You know, I think we make up the differences and then complain about them. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Well, let's move on to part two of this section of chapters. And I think there's going to be a lot more for us to pick up from in here because this is really where a lot of the drama starts to take place. And we can um, look at some of the issues and themes through the story action. So. Yes. In the village, Tanar meets with old Fan the Weaver, who long ago rented her a cottage and watched over her until she left Eyehall for the Middle Valley. He shows her a fan which mingles the images of people on one side and dragons on the other. On returning to Eyehall's house, she learns that one of Theru's abusers had been there, to Theru's great terror, and was working in the hayfields of the Lord of Ray Albe. Tanar goes to warn them of Hande's behavior, but she's confronted by the Lord's wizard, Aspen, who insults and threatens her for being a woman. Tanar is saved from his curse by the appearance of two of the courtiers from Havnor, who do her honor and save her from being cursed, but then return amicably to the castle with the wizard. A few days later, after the courtiers are gone, Aspen curses Tanar from a distance, blocking her ability to speak or think in Hardik. She uses Kargish instead and manages to leave with Theru to the port town, where they encounter Theru's abuser, who actually touches her before they are rescued by King Lebanon, who arrived on that ship. He takes them in, and on their voyage back to the port of Tanar's home in the Middle Valley, they discuss the conundrum of no archmaid and the related words, a woman on Gaunt. King Bamanan says he will not allow anyone to come looking for Ged again. Theoru can take no joy in the voyage, but Tanar hopes the king might one day visit them on Oak Farm. So <clears throat> this part of the, the story um, was really uh, shocking in some ways, uh, and it goes back to that idea of Heroic fantasy and, you know, you know, the, the fate of the world, the stake, whatever. But what we're dealing with is misogyny and violence against women and violence against children. And, and she's not veering off from it. She's not just hinting at it, but she's sticking it right there in the center of the story. Mm -hmm. And it's confronting and it's challenging yeah. to, you know, to, to see and then the the from the point of view of Tanar, um, you know, to feel that that fear and that sickening feeling that you're powerless, that she as a woman has no voice in seeking justice. Mm -hmm. And it's only by, you know, whatever the fates, the wheel weaves, I don't know, however you want to, <laughs> you know, Ararugla, whatever. That she meets the king on the dock and he takes her in, you know, 99.99% of the other times that's not happening and that's Handy right. and his ilk win. 
Yeah. You know, or or it just gets so ugly and and convoluted that, you know, that they still win. And so this question of uh, and it was really interesting to hear Tanar think and speak about um being eaten and fear and feeding and being hungry and we're not going to feed him, we're right. going to starve him. But yet that's a lot of great thought and a way to sort of psychologically bolster yourself. But then the reality is, is that when he's able to touch Tanar, it shatters a year's worth of work that she was doing to mm-hmm. rehabilitate, you know, to, to, to heal, to, to work with the healing with, of, of Theru. Yeah. By a touch, by one touch, right? Yeah. All gone. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I don't think she addresses as openly as she might is Tanar had promised yes. yeah, that he will never touch you again. Right. And even the first time I read the book, I thought, oh, you can't do that. Don't make those promises. You cannot make that promise to Yeah. And sure enough, it's broken. Yeah. And so now you have a whole other series of problems to confront. Mm. How do you how do you explain? And and how does Tanar even explain to herself mm-hmm. why she ran, why she was so afraid? You know, there were people over the deck. What could you do to us? But we are trained to exactly the response that Tanar made. We are gendered into it. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, this is the strength of the spell. Right. You have a woman who was a priestess of the Dark Ones and who is a wife and mother and who knows about care and all these. And is Tanar of the Ring? You know, right. she's literally famous throughout the islands. Right. And she looks different from everybody else. Like she's yes. not, you know. Yes. This yes. is a, you know, and yet she's powerless in face of the sociological structures that give the man power over mm-hmm. um, uh, his wife and children, property, mm-hmm. right? Right. And even granted that she had been under a spell. Mm-hmm. Right. She knew that it had cleared the further away she got right. from Ray Alby. So that was Did he fine. place the spell on the house or on her? I would say the spell was placed on her, but it was triggered in the house. Okay. And the closer she gets to the castle, the stronger the spell becomes. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, that's my interpretation of it. I'm not sure what Ligon would have said. Okay. Anyway. But it's, it's the heartbreaking knowledge mm-hmm. that every parent has to face at some point how do you tell your child right i will keep you as safe as i can Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not i will never let you be hurt that's just you can't say it's impossible right i think you cannot say that right no (laughs) as much as you want to yeah and it breaks my heart to think about right no and that's part of our job as parents is to prepare our children for the world and at some point mm-hmm. you have to start having some very real conversations with them about what the world is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think that's really interesting when when theru is playing with the little bone figurines and she gets the dolphin and this sense of uh world and magic that children have with mm-hmm. their um stuffed animals and toys and stuff i was Walking to school today to for school pickup, 
mm-hmm. and a father and uh, I must have been a kindergartner were walking up the hill and uh, the little girl was had this uh, black stuffed animal, looked like a cat, maybe a cat-like creature or something like that. Mm-hmm. And for her, that was her world as she's, yes. you know, walking and and all that was just all that was there for her mm-hmm. was holding on to this little stuffed creature. I mean, mm-hmm. my good Lord, just directly above me, we have so many stuffed animals <laughs> <laughs> in my daughter's room, you know, that that populate her world. Mm-hmm. Um, lesson, it's interesting because as she's getting older, they have less and less potency because, you know, the, the mind starts to widen out and can take in the world in, in bigger and bigger bites. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, those little talismans are so, uh, they, they, they don't, yeah, the world isn't there for them in that way. They can't hear or see beyond certain things. At the same time, I think toys represent the beginning steps toward understanding that you do have agency. Exactly. Exactly. You, know, you are in control of the world mm-hmm. of the bone people. And that's what she was showing us with that, I think, in that scene. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And, you know, Tenar is quite clear that this is a mysterious world to her. But to Theru, there's a sense of endless yes. possibility. It's living. Yeah. And that, and when that we she is in charge of for right. once. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Everything yeah. else in the world she, you know, right. feels she has no control over. But this is where she can start to begin to learn what it is to express agency herself. Right, right. And and for somebody who was had their agency v- horrifically abused and taken away and and uh, her autonomy and her agency and her her bodily yes. integrity so yeah. grossly violated and trust completely shattered. Right. That's by probably, the people that you're supposed to be trusting. Exactly. So. I think that's probably the single biggest magic for lack of a better word that Tanar was able to accomplish mm-hmm. was to teach Theru that she could trust her. Right. That she would be trustworthy. But then along comes the the gender system. Right. Along <clears throat> with some really evil magic. Um and it all snaps. Can I read one of my favorite moments that happens prior to this sure, moment? Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> this is this is the when she first encounters Aspen in person, yeah. and he is talking to her, did you think I did not know you for a witch? When I saw that foul imp that clings to you, do you think I did not know how it was begotten and for what purposes? The man did well who tried to destroy that creature, but the job should be completed. You defied me once across the body of the old wizard, and I forbore to punish you then for his sake and in the presence of others. But now you've come too far, and I warn you, woman, I will not have you set foot on this domain. And if you cross my will or dare so much as speak to me again, I will have you driven from Ray Albion off the Overfell with the dogs at your heels. Have you understood me? No, Tanar said. I have never understood men like you. That is the line I think that at some point in their lives, every single woman would have loved to have said to a man, but could not afford to. Right. Could not afford to. Right. Unless systems were different, but I kind of doubt that they would be because the- Even now, that would be a, a very difficult thing to to speak out. Yes, it you would. Know, to be, and still be not be labeled uh, hysterical or emotional or, you know, or, you know, 
Mm -hmm. Oh, just, yeah. There's a whole raft of stuff that you could label somebody with that to, 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 to diminish and to depower them. To, to demonstrate defiance is to invite punishment. Right. Right. And that's what she does there. And that's when she almost got cursed (laughs) by him out in the open. But those two courtiers come along and, oh, dear, dear, no, we can't have this. This won't do. This won't do. So he resorts to um, the hidden curses, you know. First, he tries from a distance and that she's able to deal with. Right. Or Arha is able to deal with. Right. But this next one, something in the room about the location, far more potent. And I think that's a lot of what disempowers Tanar. Right. Because what more horrible thing can you think of than to not be able to think clearly? Mm-hmm. And I think of, you know, people who suffer from dementia and all that sort of thing. And, you know, this is the same sort of feeling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of I, I, how can you be in the world without being able to think? But she has Kargish. She has Arha. She right, has right. all of her former selves. And this is the moment when Arha steps forward and introduces her to Kargish. Right. And she manages to escape. So the going back a little bit around what I mentioned, you know, before about the the scouring of the Shire. Yes. Um, and this idea of justice and how justice is embodied or brought forth, and you know, with the um, with Handy and with Aspen, you know, here's. Uh, Ogion's house here's gaunt. We've known this place is sort of a, you know, reasonable town. It's not Realby. The manor has always been a little bit funky. There's something <laughs> weird going on up there, but they kind of keep to themselves. And so we're, let be, let be. Yeah, and here we have a you know beautiful vistas and you know looking down onto the port city and all of this sort of stuff, and yet. We we encounter it at the near the beginning when uh, uh, Theru and, and Tanar are coming to Ogion's house, and they encounter those three men on the road, mm-hmm. um, and then with Aspen and, and Handy, that there is no justice, or, or there is no justice available to people. Mm-hmm. Justice isn't um, a, a accessible either in in form or in function, and so. In Tolkien, when uh, it's uh, Merry and Pippin go back, mm-hmm. they find that the Shire is under siege, right? Even though the dark, the big battle has been fought, the Dark Lord's over, the ring is destroyed, yeah. Yeah. that doesn't mean anything because there's still bad people out there. And they then are able to bring justice to the situation because they've fought and they faced death and they have the moral uh, um, strength to, you know, challenge uh, the ruffians that have, you know, come into the Shire. Mm -hmm. But they're there because there is no justice. There is no king's justice. And so the whole idea in Ursi here is is with Lebanon is that there's a king restored and that they're Mm -hmm. going to bring justice to the world and to sort of set things in balance. Mm -hmm. But how do you do that? Yes. And and how is that accomplished? And, you know, right now in a, in our modern context, just me paying attention to the news of just thinking about this idea of 
demagoguery versus uh, institutional justice, right? Yeah. When um, the where the law is embodied, it is codified. It there may be uh, high priests that you have to pay a lot of homage to <laughs> to be able to say the right incantations and make the the correct pro- protestations in front of the you know the power centers. But there is, it's accessible and it's codified and, and available to us. And so there's mm-hmm. an institution that is made up of thousands and thousands of people to, to try to seek some, to, to establish a neutral form of justice and have it. In this world, in, in our Ursi, we don't. It's embodied by the king. Right. Right. And, and without king, without a king, there, who is setting the scales? Who is, who is mm-hmm. able to embody justice? And mm-hmm. so it, it really feels like, if you're somewhere here and somebody like Handy or, or you know, these other ruffians or, or Aspen, they, they could do whatever they want. Yeah. Not only in a gender standpoint, but, but in any standpoint, because who is going to hold them to account? If they're more powerful than you, you know, or if they come in the night, that's it. You don't have mm-hmm. access mm-hmm. to... Uh, uh, any redress or defense or anything, you're you're powerless. Yeah, and so there is no justice there, right? There is there's there's no peace. There's no justice. Yeah, I really love that analogy with the scouring the shard. I'd never thought of that before. And there's a lot of parallels there. One thing I will point out is that Mary and Pippin come back as um, officers of the king. True. That's true. Messengers of the king. Right. They both are and sworn into service for their For their lords. Mm-hmm. And so they have some connection back to the system. Now, what that means when, you know, Gondor is hundreds of miles away. Exactly. Whatever, it means nothing. <laughs> it means nothing in one sense. But because Mary and Pippin have been trained to take it on and right. ennobled to take it on, they are able to deal with the immediate situation. And then we assume afterwards, you know, hobbits go back to their usual peace-loving ways. Le Guin is giving us a similar situation insofar as, yes, there hasn't been a king for years, so Aragorn's return is very much like Lebanon's rise to the throne. But they've had the wizards. Right. Roke has been the source of justice and the wizards serving throughout their communities. I suppose there's a parallel there, too, with the Jedi somehow. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But the problem is, Roke is in confusion. Partly right. because of all the damage that's been done by the right. wizards who let open a hole in the world. And partly by the fact that they don't have an archmage anymore. They don't know how to get one or right. find one. They're, they're all in confusion. All of these things are the result of this evil wizard trying to deny death and, you know, breaking a hole in the world and right. so on and so on. And those are sort of the, the higher level. I don't like hierarchies again. Right, 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 right. That's where it's placed. Um, where those were the, the, the overt effects amongst the powerful, the ones who are expected to deliver justice. Mm-hmm. We're now also seeing the effects of that same damage done to everyday people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To right. common people. Um, who on the island of Gaunt never really had a whole lot of recourse to much of anything. I mean, they have a town, they have Ogian, now Ihal, um, a wizard they could call upon at need. 
there was a wizard in the town of uh, Realby. And now here's this wizard up in the castle. Right. And there is something very wrong about this. Right. But there's no recourse. I mean, pirates are an open secret right. on Gaunt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's their second biggest export. <laughs> <laughs> after I can't remember what the first one was. Um, goat, uh, so, yeah. Uh, goat-related products. Probably. But there is this sense of who is going to maintain the justice, the natural justice that a lot of philosophers and other people talk about. Exactly. Right. With all these absences and these uncertainties. And again, the outcome of a fantasy style damage to the world event manifests in a small village on a small island in a small child. Which, when I come to Le Guin and I'm reading what I want to read with her, one of the things that she does as a writer is scale things so they can be world-spanning or, or you know, very small, but I never lose a sense of intimacy mm. with her world. No mm-hmm. matter what's going on on the back of a dragon or in the <laughs> in the Patterner's Grove or on a little boat out in the water somewhere, mm-hmm. her writing always brings you this level of intimacy. And so she can take these big, complex issues like celibacy and gender and, and power and magic and whatnot, justice, mm-hmm. and she can just bring it right into this very – and in, in this story, in, in – ta- Taihanu so far, my experiences of it, the, the writing is less poetic in some ways. It's, I, I don't mm-hmm. know, there was some, there was a magic around the first three books and, and those were very early in her writing days and, and a, sort of a natural gift. And then, you know, over the course of time. So her writing style has changed. Mm-hmm. It's less uh, f- uh, fractal in nature is the way I kind of want to describe it. Hmm. It's more, it's more, it's mundane is not the way I want to say it. it's just more grounded and more straightforward mm-hmm. and just desc- and, and just simply descri- described but mm-hmm. yet the intimacy to these big issues is so still present in the everyday uh walk you know letting the goats out and uh mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you know going down to auntie moss's house mm-hmm. right and and the images that you're using are exactly the words that she used to describe her process mm-hmm. that she got off the dragon of the familiar tropes and the hero story and mm-hmm. the things that she knew so well. And she walked on her own two feet. Interesting. And so it was no longer sailing with the beige wind in your sails. Right. It was one foot in front of the other to walk a 15 mile trek right, right. from your house on the cliff down to the harbor. Right. And she her, she stumbled on her words, mm. just like Tanar, because mm-hmm. the dragon would put winged words in your mouth. Right. But suddenly you it are rejecting. It wasn't hers in a way. It was not hers. Right. Or it was only partly hers. Right. And well, she was, was she was acting in the play. She was she, she was, was under the spell. Yeah, she was working uh, what had been given to her rather than inventing something. 
right. of her own. Right. And she did it so damn well. Of course <laughs> like, she did. Of course she amazing. did. And now she's inventing an entire new language. Right. Right. Which is even more amazing. Right. And just remember one of the or texts, one of the things we hear over and over and over is all changed. Mm-hmm. So that when you're talking about justice and restoring equilibrium and all these things. There's an interesting conversation on the boat, and I wanted to credit Davy Mack in particular on this because okay. he he sent us, he was talking in the Discord channel, and okay. he talks about the whole topic of ordinary fears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a conversation between uh, the Wind Key, one of the nine mages of Roke, right. and Tanar and the king mm-hmm. on the boat sailing back, bringing right. her and, and Teru back home. So the mage opens, that one whom the archmage and my lord defeated in the dry land, that cob, caused untold harm and ruin. We shall be repairing our art, healing our wizards and our wizardry for a long time yet, the mage said decisively. I wonder if there might be more to be done than repairing and healing, she said. Though that too, of course. But I wonder, could it be that that one such as Cobb could have such power because things were already altered. And that a change, a great change had been taking place, has taken place. And that it's because of that change that we have a king again in Earthsea, perhaps a king rather than an archmage. The Wenki looked at her as if he saw a very distant storm cloud on the uttermost horizon. He even raised his right hand in the hint, the first sketch of a wind-binding spell and then lowered it again. He smiled. Don't be afraid, my lady, he said. Broke, and the art magic will endure. Our treasure is well guarded. Tell Kalesen that, she said, (laughs) suddenly unable to endure the utter unconsciousness of his disrespect. It made him stare, of course, he heard the dragon's name, but it did not make him hear her. How could he? would never listened to a woman since his mother sang him his last cradle song, Hear Her. Indeed, said Lebanon, Kellison came to Roke, which is said to be defended utterly from dragons, and not through any spell of my lord's, for he had no majory then. But I don't think, Master Winkie, that Lady Tanar was afraid for herself. The mage made an earnest effort to amend his offense. I am sorry, my lady, he said. I spoke as to an ordinary woman. She almost laughed. She could have shaken him. She said only, indifferently, My fears are ordinary fears. It was no use. He could not hear her. But the young king was silent, listening. So what was Davy Mack's take on this? I don't have the text in front of me. Sure. No, no, we can just... We'll just keep going. Uh, The thing that stuck out for me the most was his using the phrase ordinary fears and how much he appreciated the fact that this book talks about ordinary people doing ordinary things and Mm -hmm. having ordinary fears. And that this was a completely different view in this long tradition of fantasy literature. Right, okay, right, right. Wizards and dragons and all these different things. We are now bringing in the ordinary people, the widows and the abused children and, and the goat herds. And You know, what I was particularly 
taken aback by in this passage was the when the winky says, "Oh, I'm sorry, milady. You know, I spoke as to an ordinary woman. What the hell are you doing speaking to ordinary people that way anyway? <laughs> like, <laughs> where's your damn manners, right? Seriously. You know, but it's 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 hierarchy, it's status. So I'm, you know, the the master winky. Where here's the king, right? Who's he's he's out. He's in, amongst people. He's learning. He's listening. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not so." full of himself that he can't appreciate somebody else's point of view. He's only 18 years old. Right. And he's been to death and back. Yeah. And he was well brought up Mm -hmm. as a prince and a king. Right. The wizard has been taught all of his life that he is to be powerful and potent, the protector of the realm, the maintainer of the equilibrium. He's part of this magic of, of, uh, right. Of, being removed from his gender, but enforcing the gender norm and roles. So, mm-hmm. but also unable to imagine anything else, yeah. anything else, and reaching back to the things he knows, as we all do, mm-hmm. but unable to hear from a woman, even from a woman as famous as Tanar, right? That you know, things might be changing here. It may be that instead of restoring and repairing, you should be thinking about what has changed and what does that mean for us? What is so interesting that's just occurring to me now, too, when she wrote The Tombs of Atuan as -hmm. the second book in, uh, what is it, 71, Mm -hmm. she had no idea that she was going to write Teanu in 1990, yet... (laughs) <laughs> Tenar, <laughs> the eaten one, the little girl in the labyrinth who brings the ring is the character in this book who is breaking, you know, who, yeah. who is who is the one who is breaking apart or or challenging these structures. I don't say breaking apart. She's just going, well, isn't there something else we can do? And the the maid's like, oh, oh. you know, they're, they're, every time she encounters a man of power, they get flustered by her because she's powerful. Powerful. Yes, she is a powerful woman. And, and they, they don't t- know what to do with they it. They don't know what to do with it. But the, the, the wild thing is, is that her character here in this book, she had no idea that back then in 71, that this character was going to be the voice of this alternate perspective and so in a way was you know tenar was in her in this cave in this dark place found her way out of the maze Mm -hmm. and into this other story where she could speak a a bigger truth because when you are other whatever your otherness consists of you are outside a system and therefore you can observe it in a way that people inside the system cannot right but this idea of the this fictional construct mm-hmm. from 1971. Yes, yes, I know, I know. You know, coming around, and that is her other her other point of view that she was able to use to examine the system. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. she had no idea in 1971 what she was doing that this was going to be the result. Right? And she had the courage to pick up on it. Yeah, yeah. to take what she had learned in those 20 years. Right. And go back and say, okay. There's a there's something here. There's a truth here. That there's can something be- here. And she didn't know what it was either. Mm-hmm. 
I don't want to say much more at this point because that's more the matter of of the third third of the book. Sure, we'll be covering next time. But keep that in mind. All changed. Okay. And, and and what does that mean? Right. And teacher all. Right. Teacher, teacher all. all. Teacher oh. all. Yep. Should we talk a little bit about uh, Theru? Oh yes, let's talk about Theru. Okay. I just I love that she is now more of a person in her own right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's often true with children. I mean, you know better than I do because you have children, but that the developmental stage to the point where suddenly you realize, oh my gosh, this is a person. Yes. With ideas and opinions mm-hmm. and desires of their own. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Theru could even develop to that point is a more than minor miracle and a testimony to Tanar's power, which is not a power over, it's a power with and it's an empowerment and it's love. Mm-hmm. So uh, Ursula writes again to this week, I'm quoting her from this incredible essay, Ursula Revisioned. Any of you who have the massive tome of all the Ursula stories, <laughs> it's the very last thing in the book, do read it once you've read all of, of Tana. Of, mm. um, ter, ter, ten, tahanu. There it is. Too many T names. <laughs> yes, which book are <laughs> Just we Just like reading? the F and L's, right? Right. Okay. So what, what Le Guin says is, Theru was the key to this book. Until I saw Theru, until she chose me, there was no book. I couldn't see the story till I could look through her eyes. But which eye, the seeing or the blind? Mm -hmm. So I'll just drop that in there for people to contemplate. So on that, I'll I'll grab a thread from there and, and tug on it a little bit. There's a lot of foreshadowing and seeding of, you know, sign and portent, very draconic uh, in some <laughs> regards. Um, but then I, there was a scene that struck me when Tanar is brushing her hair and the static yes. sparks are flying out and, 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 um, and uh, Theru is, is seeing something. And on one level, you can simply go, oh, well, she's just a child and she's seeing something that's really cool, just like, you know, breathing life into her bone toys or, or playing whatever little games. Mm-hmm. But is she seeing more? Mm-hmm. Is she mm-hmm. seeing as a person of power can see other people of power and to see their auras or whatever mm-hmm. energies mm-hmm. that they're, you know connected to or giving off. And so it, it really, for me, was a, hmm, what's going on here sort of question. And then all this dragon stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, whatnot. So, uh, you know, uh, and again, I don't I, I, God, did I even finish Tehanu back in the 90s? I can't even remember. I don't even know what's coming. And so I'm just trying to pick up on the clues that mm-hmm. are, are, because she does do that. She, she lays out a bunch of little breadcrumbs that you can pick up. Uh, oh, yes, for, she does. for story stuff later. Yes, she does. So uh, I also thought it was interesting about the kestrel circling and uh, hunting. Yeah. Yeah. And finally catching the vole. Right. Which they had been ensnared by the spell. Yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, yeah. So, yeah. What's up with Theru and what's up with the dragon stuff and what's up with the woman of Gaunt? You know, there's, yeah. there's yeah. a whole bunch of stuff she can weave there. And I'm, yep. you know, well, here's the thing that sticks out for me the most in that scene. Mm-hmm. Theru was smiling, 
And Tenard did not know if she had ever seen the child smile mm-hmm. before. Yeah, yeah. Theodore reached out both her hands, the whole one in the bird, as if to touch and follow the flight of something around Tenard's loose, floating hair. The fire's all flying out, she repeated. And she laughed. Mm-hmm. That's extraordinary. Yeah. That this is why I say she's becoming a person. Right. Actually seeing. Right. She's having thoughts and opinions of her own. She's reacting Mm -hmm. to things. She's reacting joyfully to things. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's amazing. Mm. Yeah. So, um, and Oyan Ihal sees something, saw something in her. Yes. So, you know, there's, there's this. Uh, it's a cur- sort of, I'm just thinking about this, what you can hear from other people mm-hmm. if you're paying attention, what you can learn from them, like the king's listening, or yes. the master Winky can't hear right. what right. she's saying, or what can you see, you know, if you have that gift of being able to see mm-hmm. a, a person of power. Mm-hmm. He said, they will fear her. And he said, teach her all, not mm-hmm. broke. I don't know what he meant. How can I know? If I had stayed here with him, I might know. I might be able to teach her. But I thought, Ged will come. He'll know. He'll know what to teach her, what she needs to know, my wronged one. I do not know. He said, speaking very low, I saw in the child, I see only the wrong done, the evil. It goes to that quote uh if not uh if not you who or you know <laughs> the or the idea that no one's coming there's no rescue mm-hmm. there's no rescue squad coming that's right it's that's right. it's you in this moment there's no hero origin story i mean that line was a hero being born mm-hmm. was an interesting one but you know get at this point is still very very wounded right and we'll see more about that in the next section. And it's very hard for him to see anything right. beyond the evil and the ruin and, and right. all the rest of it. I did note, too, that she grabbed the books. Yes, she did. Mm-hmm. Books are sacred. Yeah. Remember, there's an awful lot of our dear Ursula in our dear Tanakh. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that as Ursula peeping out there. It's okay. like, no, right. don't leave the books. <laughs> yes. And you can feel and the tension. She- you yes, know, and how she hated to not? tear a small strip off anything so sacred as a book to mm-hmm. send the note to get to tell right. him to leave that night and, right, and right, go right. off to her farm. And the thing is, you know, even though he no longer has his empowerment at this point that he had, uh, Ged still can't see anything other than the evil. I Hall could see something. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he died too soon. Or he he it he kind of got off the topic too soon. Mm-hmm. He saw and he said he saw. Tenar sees with the eyes of love, mm-hmm. and she doesn't know yet what she's seeing, mm-hmm. but she has a way to look differently. And uh, Le Guin actually calls her a wolf mother. Okay, because she's raising this wild child, mm-hmm. this child who has almost been dehumanized. She's certainly been degendered. Mm-hmm. Because all of the things that men might find ad- admirable and attractive in are her gone. gender are right. gone. Yep. Her virginity is gone. She's ugly. Right. You know, all of those things. And so who or what is she? Tanar doesn't care. She's a child mm-hmm. who needs healing. 
and love and affection. Right. And she will not let the dark ones take her. Right. So and that is the, the it, it, that battle or mm. the battle of the five armies. It doesn't matter. That's the battle, <laughs> right? That's the battle. Doesn't matter. That's the battle. Yeah. What scale you're talking about. You're there another in that thing, moment. Another thing when, when um, she needs to send the message mm-hmm. uh, to get, she's she, initially she says to Theru, go and get Zippy to take this message over to Auntie Moss. And mm-hmm. Theru says, I will go. Yeah, right. And Tanar is astonished and says, right. but you'll have to pass the village. And she says, I will go. Mm-hmm. And so Tanar tucked the paper into the child's pocket, held her, kissed her, let her go. Theru went, not crouching and sidling now, but running, freely, flying, Tanar thought, seeing her vanish in the evening light beyond the dark doorframe, flying like a bird, a dragon, a child, mm. free. Mm-hmm. So again, she's got this agency, and she sees in Ged perhaps someone who is even more wounded than she is, and it's something she can do for someone else. Right, right. And we've never seen her run before. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And to, to or, run and walk and openly. And to be a child. And to be a child. Just running in the field. Yeah. Right. Right. So. Well, uh, anything else or? Well, Theodore certainly responds strongly the first time she hears Tanar say the name Kalesin. Mm-hmm. So we can put a pin in that. Is that more dragon <laughs> foreshadowing? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm shifting into dragon here. <laughs> okay. Oh, um, right. Because you have dragon here on your notes. A warmth, well. a wave of warmth heat seemed to flow from the child as if she were in fever. She said nothing but moved her lips as if repeating the name and that fever heat burned around her. And then we have, and this is really important. I do want to read this. Mm-hmm. Um, the image of the fan. Yeah, oh, fan right. I forgot about Schoester. that. Yeah. We have to bring this in here. Right. There was a lot packed in here. In, there was. There in was. He has chapters. this yeah. beautiful, ornate fan, which gives him his use name. And on it is a picture of uh, lords and ladies and castles kind of almost seeming to float in the sky. And he asks her, did I ever show you the other side? Right. And she says no. And so she gets it down and flips it around. And on the other side are dragons flying through the air and with clouds and so on and so on and so on. And let's see, dragons moved as the folds of the fan moved, painted faint and fine on the yellow silk dragons of pale red blue green moved and grouped as the figures on the other side were grouped among clouds and mountain peaks hold it up to the light said old fan she did so and saw the two sides the two paintings made one by the light flowing through the silk so that the clouds and peaks were the towers of the city and the men and women were winged and the dragons looked with human eyes you see? I see, she murmured. I can't know, but it's in my mind's eye. I don't show many that. It is very wonderful. So, yeah, she's she's setting stuff up. <laughs> she's setting stuff up big time here. Yep. And uh, this idea of people as dragons. And I think there's that, that short story, Mr. Underhill, 
Well, yes. I shouldn't say too much more. But yeah, yes. there's there's yeah, I I don't know. Okay, yeah, it's just she's playing with this idea of of dragons and you know, uh, dragon spirit and dragon power and all kinds of stuff. And I don't know yet what to make of it all. Mm-hmm. And it seems like just a sort of an interesting, you know, little Philip or character drop or something or an excuse for her to be there with Van. Or right. No, whatever. no, no, no. It's it's this but, is <laughs> she doesn't do small stuff like that. In she does not. And yet you still have to kind of pay attention. Yeah. And in that, in this run of chapters, there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. And so it's this quiet little moment. Mm-hmm. And you're like, huh, interesting. And then all of a sudden there's all this other stuff. And, and it's easy to forget that scene. Yep. So. Yep. All right. Anything else? Um, just be with us for the next episode. Okay. <laughs> enjoy the ride because yes. it's so it's intense and it's scary and it's delightful and terrifying. And don't worry, it does end well. <laughs> it is fantasy novel after all. <laughs> we need our heroes to win. Whether they are archmages of full power or aged widows oh, or right. injured young women. That's right. Well, We've got a bit going on over here in Lorehound's world. So I'm just going to do a quick round the world tour of our <laughs> affiliates. Uh, Alicia is busy with a bunch of stuff. Her and Luke, you may remember Luke from their silo coverage, are going to be covering a show called Beacon 23. We just pushed out a little intro to all the channels, uh, setting that up. And her and Luke are going to have their primer episode out soon so go subscribe to the Woolshift dust feed to check that out she's also going to be doing some book club stuff with abby who is also um somebody who's been around and sort of recently joined and her and abby are are going to team up on doing the beacon 23 book and they're also going to pick up on the Woolshift dust book so check out the Woolshift dust book club on patreon Anthony and Steve just finished up their uh, season of covering remake movies. They covered things like RoboCop, The Wolfman, Wicker Man, Departed, a whole bunch of stuff. That'll a good time. And until they come back around with their next season of movie reviews, we have Severance in the mix. So we are expecting Severance season two to be out on Apple TV sometime in early 2024. And so Steve and Anthony have already recorded a whole season one recap, and we're dropping those on Fridays. And then once season two starts, John and I are going to join Anthony and Steve, and we're going to do a four, four, four by four uh, recap of season two, episode to episode, week to week. And we set up a whole separate feed just for that. So go subscribe to that feed if you're interested in that show. It's we're not going to we'll release some stuff here and there just for getting people's attention, but just for logistics sake, it was easier to set up a separate feed. So go subscribe to that feed and uh, those episodes are dropping weekly on Fridays. For Lorehounds, we're playing a lot of catch up. We have (laughs) the uh, Marvel's movie coming out. We've been covering Loki and then we're catching up with um, um, uh, Silmarillion stories. We've got Earthsea. We've got some Star Wars stuff. And then, of course, our second breakfast podcast. I believe the Lorehounds Play 
podcast should be out soon. The, they covered Skyrim, uh, John and, um, and uh, Brandon covered uh, Skyrim. So hopefully that's going to be out very soon. So stay tuned to our channels and we'll keep everybody posted as things are rolling out. Uh, also, I want to m- quick uh, make a quick mention about our Patreon. We have one and it's the best way to support us. And if you're interested in supporting us, you can join for as little as $3 a month. If you want to do an annual subscription, we give you a 10% discount. And for under $35 a year, you can support us and all of the people that we work with in all the projects that we're doing. And, and uh, you know, it's it's no easy feat to run a little mini podcast network. There's a lot of moving parts involved. And our Patreon supporters are really the engine that keeps the car going. And to our top tier subscribers, our lore masters, we always like to give them a quick shout out at the end of every podcast. So Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H, Michael G, Michelle E, David W, Brian P, Nick W, SC, Peter OH, Bettina W, Adam S, Nancy M, Lavinia T, Duve 71, Brian 8063, Frederick H, Sarah L, Gareth C, Eric F, Matthew M, Sarah M, DJ Miwa, Andra B, Kwang Yu, Laura G, Dead Eye Jedi Bob, Nathan T, Alex V, Aaron T, Sub Zero, and Adrian. Thank you all for your continued support. Boy. Thanks, guys. That's just amazing. And it's so wonderful to have that support to be able to do way too much, but it's too much fun <laughs> to drop anything. That's so right. we're not going to. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And this list, it's just incredible. I mean, the, you know, we've, we've, not lost a lore master, right? They're, they all stick around. We just keep coming. That's great. <laughs> just keep coming. It means a lot to us. So, Marilyn, it was a pleasure to talk with you this chapter, and we look forward to John yes. joining us for the finale. I know you've been really Indeed enjoying this do. book. And so, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the, the resolution of this and, uh, mm-hmm. and moving forward. So, send us feedback, guys. You yes. Know, it's, we really want to know how you are reacting to all this. Yeah. And, uh, what it's bringing you to and and uh it's just fascinating to know from your side so actually i'm kind of hoping that maybe john will send us feedback <laughs> <laughs> to this episode since he sadly was not right. able to be with us tonight because I, I, I i would hate for anybody to have to miss his perspective indeed great all right Marin, uh thanks so much uh good night and we'll see you next time thank you very much good night folks the lorehounds podcast is produced and published by the lorehounds you can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.